Let's pray together. Oh God, what a beautiful prayer. It, it, it comes, it wells up within all of our hearts. In a world, a journey strewn with signs. If you would take our hand, if you would lead us on, that's, that's all we need. That's all we ask. So we go to Holy Scripture. Teach us today. Let the teaching be clear. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's helpful for me to remind you right now that this series of teachings is the direct result of meeting this last spring with a group of university students around a table of pizza. Ask them to evaluate the worship service. Today's service reflects their counsel. And then the preaching. What does this campus need to hear? And those young adults told me, Pastor, we need to be held morally accountable. Hence this series hid in my heart. And hence today the series makes a radical pivot. Moral accountability. Moral authority. Moral absolutes. All begin with A, and God knows we need an A in today's teaching. How'd you like to live, how would you like to live in a world where there are no laws, where everybody does what is right in his own eyes? A world where stop really doesn't mean stop, it means we kind of wish you'd slow down a bit before you head on out of here. Some of you live in that world, I've watched you drive on this campus. You know, a world where, where, where speed limit signs are cheerful suggestions, thoughtful reminders. You know, we kind of would like to, we kind of hope you could maybe go this fast. A world where green means go, and yellow means go faster, and red means fly. How would you like to live in a world where there are no laws? Where everyone does what is right in her own eyes? Where a woman can walk into a clinic and demand the killing of her fetus? No questions asked. A world where the largest drug companies in the richest nation on earth can protest the government's request to manufacture new vaccines for a potential pandemic and avian flu. Oh, do we have to do this? Because vaccines have been notoriously poor money makers for the pharmaceuticals. A world where a popular television preacher right on live camera can call for the assassination of the leader of a nearby country all for the sake of advancing the political and economic agenda of the United States. How would you like to live in a world where there are no laws, where everybody does what is right in his or her own eyes? Where the nation can cluck its self-righteous tongue at the looting being done in New Orleans by flood-ravaged inner-city inhabitants only to learn this very week that the police of New Orleans during that same time were stealing Cadillacs from off the lot of a local dealership. A world where terrorists and, and insurgents and soldiers can blow away innocent women and children all for the sake of a cause that they espouse. How'd you like to live in a world where there are no laws, where everybody does what is right in his or her own eyes? Well, welcome to the postmodern world of the judges. 
That's right. Seventh book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Because you know what? The last line of that seventh book is rapidly becoming the last line of this postmodern society. I think you'd agree. Open, open your Bible, please, to the little book of Judges. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab the one that's in the pew rack in front of you. It would be page 185 in that Bible. Judges chapter 21, the very last chapter, the very last line of Judges. Judges chapter 21. Judges 21, last line, that would be verse 25. All right. I'm reading. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. How would you like to live in a world where there are no laws and everybody does that which is right in their own eyes? Once upon a time in such a world, there were two preacher's kids and one country boy. And in the juxtaposition of their two stories, we are confronted with a most embarrassing but radical contrast. I say embarrassing because I am a preacher's kid and I'm married to preacher's kid and we have two preacher's kids. And I understand that preacher's kids are notoriously good or notoriously bad. And when you put the notoriously bad upside a remarkably good country boy, it's not only embarrassing, it's tragic. Let me share their story with you. Once upon a time, there were two preacher's kids. Their dad was the senior pastor of the fledgling faith community. Bad boys. Bad boys. You know why? Permissive dad, that's why. A dad who, who didn't have the hotspot. To demand that his boys behave in a godly sort of way. These boys grew up and became pastors. Back where they lived, you inherited the job. They took the job, however, for the sake of financial gain and personal sex. That's how bad the story is. I want you to take a look at the story for yourself. Still in the time of the judges, just turn a few pages forward in your Bible to the book of 1 Samuel. That would be three pages more. Just turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Sorry to report this to you, but the story really is in Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 12. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Those are the boys. Papa's name is Eli. He's the high priest of the fledgling Israel. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. It's an old Hebrew word. It means worthless. The New Testament comes along and says, hey, we'd love to have that word. And they apply it to Satan. That's how bad the word is. The sons of Eli were worthless. Why? For they knew not. They knew not the Lord. I mean, these guys came up with a swift little plan for Sabbath dinner. They figured out, in the next verses you can read it there, they figured out that if they would send their servant to all the worshipers who came to church, follow the people home, the, the, the servant would step into that house where the boiling cauldron or pot or kettle is with, with the meat inside. And the servant said, listen, I'm here, I'm here from the pastor. And he had a three-pronged fork. And he would, he would plunge that fork in that pot. And whatever came up, whatever came up, pastor gets to have it. I mean, how would you like that? How would you like it if I followed you home after, uh, after church? You know, and I walked into your house with a three-pronged fork. And I went to that cottage cheese loaf, but, you, but the, the problem with the cottage cheese loaf is nothing sticks to the fork, does it? So you wouldn't get anything. I wouldn't touch your cottage cheese loaf. I'd go for your baked potatoes, maybe get four of them on one plunge. Isn't that bad? 
on occasion, before they were even boiling their food, they were, they were cutting the fat off. You know, that was instruction. So they're cutting the fat off, and the servant would show up and say, I want that fat. Preacher wants that fat. And if they said, no, this is a part of our sacrifice for worship, the servant, look at the end of verse 16, the servant would say, I'll tell you what, I'll punch your lights out if you don't give that to me. That's what it says. I'll take it by force. That's how bad those PKs were. Take a look at verse 17, summing it up. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the young men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But now here it comes in radical, I'm telling you, embarrassing contrast. Enter now the country boy. Verse 18, but, I like that, but Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child. We're talking about a boy. Being a child, girded with a linen ephod, that's lower rung Levites, little, little, kind of like a choir robe that they'd wear to say, I'm a part of the religious uh, services. Little tiny linen ephod, verse 19, moreover, his mother made him a little coat, God bless our mothers for keeping us warm, and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. You see, Samuel has been a gift from God to a very desperate housewife who has been pleading and cajoling and begging God, please, I have no children. I have no children. Give me a boy. God, give me a boy. If you give me a boy, I'll give that boy straight back to you. And God heard Mother Hannah's prayer. He said, I'll give you a boy. I need a boy. And she, as soon as Samuel had been weaned, she took him to the sanctuary in Shiloh and that little tot... That little lad moved into the house of Eli, corrupt, depraved clergy home. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Give me a break. Oh, yes, something good can come. Someone good can come if that someone has ears for God. Now, the two preachers, kids, they didn't have it. I mean, this story goes from bad to worse. Look at this, verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. Verse 22, and he heard all that his sons did unto all Israel. The whole nation has been affected. And how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Can you imagine that? These boys are sleeping with the female worshipers. You want to go in? You want something special from God? You got to go through me, lady. It's enough to make you puke in the name of God. They're obviously borrowing cult prostitution from the neighboring pagans. Isn't that sad? And Papa just sits there. He just sits there. Oh, he finally says something. Where is this? He finally says something in verse 23. He said unto them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. I know what you're doing. The word's out. Verse 24. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. You're making God's people sin. Spiritual leader, you. Verse 25, if, look, 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 Papa says, look, if one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who's going to stand up for you now if you're sinning against God himself? However, notice this, notwithstanding, the boys hearken not unto the voice of their father because the Lord is going to slay them. But, here it comes again, but, the country boy, the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. How embarrassing and radical the contrast between these preacher boys and that country boy. And by the way, did you know, did you catch that? You just read it. 
Dr. Luke, when he wants to summarize the life of the Lord Jesus as a boy, he goes back to the Old Testament and he takes these very same words that are applied to Samuel and he says, I'll use those words to describe the Lord Jesus. Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased, how's it go? In wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Samuel is a forerunner of Jesus himself. He's going to be just like Jesus. You watch. Oh, my. Finally, one night, one night, God had had enough. Now, here comes the story. Here comes the story that my father... I used to love to hear my dad tell this story because my dad was big on bedtime stories. And he'd say, okay, boys, time for a story. Dad would always be the voice of God in this story, and I will never forget this story as long as I live. The story, you know the story, it's about Sam, it's about been a long day. I mean, the guy has worked hard, and when he crawls into his little sleeping bag tonight, Sam will say, oh, I am so ready to sleep, and boom, he's gone. When all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, and my dad always did this, in the middle of the night, he heard, he heard a voice, Samuel, Samuel. Somebody's calling me. Oh, it's got to be Eli. What would Eli be? What time is this? He didn't have a Seiko, but he knew. It's too, it's too late. So pitter-patter, pitter-patter, Samuel goes across the sanctuary floor to the precincts of the high priest, and then he gets to the curtain, and he knocks on the curtain. You can do that, you know, when you're telling a story. He knocks on the curtain. Eli! What, what, Eli, here I am. Here I am. Eli raises that groggy, bearded face and he shakes it. Samuel, Samuel, what are you doing? You know what time it is? No, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Yes, sir. And Samuel pitter-patters back to his sleeping bag, pulls it, covers up around his chin, falls asleep, and it happens again. Samuel, Samuel. He said, I know that's Eli calling me. He races back. Eli, I heard you. That was you. I heard you. I said, Samuel, what did my wife feed you last night? That's nothing. You're dreaming. Go back to bed. Three times this happens. You remember the story? Three times it happens. And on the third time, he goes back and knocks on that curtain. Eli, the man is getting Alzheimer's. Eli, please, I know you called me. And something happens to Eli then. Something happens. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. We are not dealing here. We are not dealing with the effects of tonight's supper. Something's going on with that boy. And Eli props himself up in his bed and he says, boy, look at me. If you hear that voice again, you are to answer these words. Do you hear me? Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Repeat it after me. You got it, Samuel? I got it. Go back. And now Samuel crawls under that sleeping bag and now he is trembling because it's not Eli. Somebody in the dark is calling him. And it could be. No, it can't be. He finally dozes off to sleep and in that instant, Samuel, Samuel. And he sits up. He is so nervous. And my dad loved this part. He is so nervous that he forgets what Eli has instructed him to say. And he just says, speak, thy servant heareth. He forgot to say, Lord. I love that verse. Whoa, I love this verse. Verse 10 of chapter 3. And the Lord came. And get this, guys. And the Lord came and stood. Stood. 
He's been looking all over the land. He's had to bypass the ecclesiastical hierarchy. He's had to bypass the spiritual leadership. He can't find anybody but a little boy. And finally, he finds a boy. This boy's going to listen to me. And God gets off his almighty throne and he comes down beside that sleeping bag and he just stands there. And he says, Samuel, I'm calling you right now. Let me tell you something. Don't you let nobody disparage your age. Ever, ever, ever. You are not too young for God to use you right now just the way you are. You have an ear for God, He'll use you. Look at that boy on the front row. That boy is not too young. William T., you're not too young. Isn't that something? Almighty God comes and stands. We've got a men's chorus here. One of you boys stands by you in the middle of the night, calls your name. Wow. And oh my, this is so sad. Verse 11, and the Lord in the darkness speaks to him. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. Both ears are going to tingle. Verse 12, In that day I will perform against Eli all the things that I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. Verse 13, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth. He knew this was going on because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. Do you think that boy slept at all for the rest of that night? Boy, you're going to deliver my message of judgment to that supreme spiritual leader in your nation. Do you think Samuel slept at all? Next morning, Eli says, Samuel, come here. Samuel's heart drops. Come here, boy. Now, what happened last night? Oh, there's nothing much. It was just, what happened? Did God come to you? Yes, sir. Did God say anything about me to you? Yes, sir. You look at me. You tell me every single word he spoke. And that obedient little boy brings a word of divine judgment on that spiritual home. Wow. How radical, how radical the contrast. What's the moral of the tale? It's actually tucked away a little earlier in the story in, in chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2. Here's the moral of the tale. A prophet has been sent to Eli, and a prophet brings the message that Samuel will later confirm. Chapter 2, go back to uh, verse 34. And this shall be a sign unto thee. The prophet's bringing a message from God to Eli. And that, that shall come upon thy two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? In one day, just a few days later, when the Philistines attacked Israel, both boys went down. And the ark of God was stolen. And Eli's back at home. And Eli is a very big man. In fact, the Bible says he was overweight and he's sitting on a chair and a runner comes back from the battlefield. <sighs> What's the problem? What's the word? I'm sorry to tell you, your boys have just been killed. Eli doesn't flinch. But then he says, what happened to the ark? The ark has been stolen and Eli has a stroke. He falls over backwards, breaks his neck and dies. Now, Phinehas, his wife, she hears of her father-in-law's death, her husband's death, her brother-in-law's death, and the stealing of the ark. And she's pregnant. She goes into premature labor. Just before she dies, she gives birth to that baby boy. And you know what she names him? Ichabod. The glory has departed. It is a sad and tragic story of disobedience versus obedience. It's a sad, sad story. 
all the signs along the way. And yet you have this story. The guy says, no, 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 verse 34. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I know those boys, but I'm going to do this. And he's speaking about Samuel now. And I will raise me up a faithful priest. Never became a priest, became a prophet. That shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind. I'll raise me up a faithful one. The dramatic contrast between disobedience and obedience. That's the moral of the sad, sad tale. And oh boy, what did he say, the one who obeyed? What was that little prayer of his? Speak. How's it go? Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Man, I had, to learn that. I had to learn that verse when I was a kid. Did you have to memorize that verse as a kid? Let's put it on the screen and say it with me. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Come on, God, talk to me. I'm listening, God. I'm, I'm open. Say something to me. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. You know, that prayer is so powerful. I wish you would find your study guide today, would you? And just jot that down. Jot this prayer down. In your worship bulletin, your living room bulletin that you got today. Pull that study guide out. Ushers, thank you for getting a study guide into everybody's hands. If you didn't get a study guide, just hold your hand up. We'll get a study guide to you. Those of you, by the way, watching on television, let me put our website on the screen, and you can go to that site. There it is, www.pmchurch.tv. Go to our series, Hid in My Heart. Hid in My Heart. And today's teaching, Torah, Torah, Torah. Click on there. You get the, you get the same study guide we have. And I wish you would join us, please, watching on television right now. I wish you would join us right here as we fill in this beautiful, beautiful prayer. Do you see it there? Second diamond. Speak, Lord, for thy servant. Write it in. Heareth. I'm giving it to you in the old King James. Because you know what? Sometimes when the language is a bit different from what you're used to, it actually sticks in your mind longer. So I'm going to give it to you in the King James. Speak, Lord, for thy servant. Heareth. First Samuel 3, 9. I repeat, ladies and gentlemen, how would you like to live in a world where there are no laws, where everyone does what is right in his own eyes, where nobody, because nobody, is listening for the voice of God anymore? The Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky described a world just like that in his book, Brothers Karamazov. Would you jot it down? Keep your pen moving. He described the world this way. If there is no God, jot it down. If there is no God, everything is permitted. Permitted. Welcome to the postmodern world of the judges and Hophni and Phineas and Samuel. That's our world today where because there's no God, everything is permitted. You can do what's right in your own eyes, which pretty much explains how Hollywood's raw flesh factories can not only grind it out, but they can actually sell their seamy debaucheries these days all in the name of entertainment. And guess what? We rent the stuff. A little bit of Saturday night flesh adrenaline, a little bit of shoot 'em up adrenaline for entertainment. Can you believe it? Where there is no God, everything is permitted. Postmodernism's utter ambiguity with God and truth has reaped the whirlwind of moral relativity and unbridled permissiveness. In fact, would you keep your pen moving here in postmodernism? And you know what postmodernism is. It's the way we think in today's age, all right? That's what they call it. In postmodernism, there is no such thing, jot this down, as capital T, truth. Write the word truth in capital T, truth. Know what Francis Schaeffer, keep your pen moving, what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. Truth that is true whether you believe it or not. There's none of that. You know why? Because postmodernism teaches that morality and truth are relative. 
There are no moral absolutes. That's why a group of young adults being served pizza, that's why they can say, you know what, we are so battered and saturated with this society, we need somebody to call us to moral accountability. Please call us to accountability. Because there's no moral absolutes. You're not getting it from the media. You're not getting it from the newspaper. It's not here. It's kind of a sophisticated, different strokes for different folks kind of mentality. I mean, you do what's right for you. I do what's right for me. It might not be right for me. What you do, what I do may not be necessary for you, but we'll all do it. We'll have one little happy permissiveness party. I mean, if you want to kill your fetus, go ahead. Be my guest. You want to rob the rich like Robin Hood? Go ahead. Just don't get caught. You want to be a big... Filthy rich American corporation like Take-Two Interactive and you insist that you need to sell Grand Theft Auto 3 where heroes blow off the heads of cops and leave red shiny blood splattered all over your television screen in the name of corporate profits. That's what you want to sell our kids. Be my guest. Go ahead. So sorry that a little boy named Devin Moore, a teenager in Alabama, played that game so many times that when he got arrested, he grabbed the cop's gun and killed three straight state troopers just like you do it on TV in the game. Where everybody does what's right in your own eyes. Fine, go ahead. Be my guest. Please. No moral absolutes. Not in this world. Not in society anymore. Jot this down, please. Our society has sown the wind of permissiveness. Write it in. And we are now reaping the whirlwind of moral anarchy. Anarchy. Not political anarchy. That, that day will come. Mark these words. After moral anarchy will come political anarchy. One day you watch. One day what we saw in New Orleans will sweep this planet because New Orleans was not an aberration. It is the fruitage of no moral absolutes. And one day the world will be ruled by moral anarchy. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, in a world of Hophni's and Phineas, we desperately need, jot this down, we desperately need a generation of Samuels. Men. Women who will stand up and stand still. Which, by the way, is precisely the point that the French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal was making 300 years ago. Boy, did he get it right. Is he describing our nation today or what? Jot this down because you need to fill in his quote. When everything is moving at once, nothing appears to be moving as on board ship. Have you ever traveled on a ship? If you don't look at the horizon, you don't know that the ship is moving. You can't because you're moving. I mean, we're all moving together, so you can't tell. Pascal goes on. When everyone is moving toward depravity... Nobody seems to be moving, but here it comes. If someone stops, write that word in. It just takes one. One to stop. If someone stops, he shows up the others who are rushing on by acting as a fixed point. Look at guys, if you're in a crowd on a subway platform, Karen and I just a few days ago were in Vienna. If you're on a sub crowded subway platform and everybody's moving this way, you want to attract attention, you just come to a sudden stop and you stand still. Good luck in even standing up. Because everything is pushing against you. That was Samuel who stood up in a moving crowd to depravity. A little boy stood up and said, I can't move. I can't. I can't go. I can't do what you're asking me to do. I know where you want to go tonight. I can't go. I know what you want to do over the break. I can't do it. I know what you're suggesting. I can't. And I tell you what, my man, you stand still and stand up. And like that, you will reveal a swirling 
path to depravity if you stand up. And the contrast, by the way, when Samuel stood up was painfully clear, was it not? We live in a world moving toward depravity, a world that Robert Bork described as slouching towards Gomorrah, a postmodern society rushing headlong, though it knows it not, toward certain destruction. Okay, Dwight, come on, Pastor. Now, what hope is there then for us who are stuck? We can't abandon this society. We're in postmodernism. We are postmodern ourselves. How shall we then live? Let me end with one more scripture. Let's call this the Samuel scripture. I've been so stirred. I've been so stirred of it by late that I've been working on memorizing it. I'd love to have you memorize it with me. We're only going to note today the first two verses of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Did I get it right, Lucy? That's right. She's my memorization partner at House of Prayer. You know, I love coming to House of Prayer because we have a whole big group up here that's doing KJV, but I love the college students. They're sitting all in that back section, and they're out, they say, we're sticking with NIV. Good for you. You stick. Patrick, you stick with NIV. Saw you leading out that group the other night. Good for you. It's not, it's not hard to memorize. You can do it. Trust me. I got the psalm memorized now. We'll just do the first two verses. And by the way, did you catch that in verse 1? I've got to find it now. Psalm 1, verse 1, did you catch that? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. You will notice in verse 1, there are three progressive verbs. Three progressive verbs for, jot this down please, for temptation and sin. Temptation always works this way. And if you will practice these three verbs, you will go from temptation, you will go to sin. Just these three verbs. Just remember these three verbs. How's it go? Let's fill it in. Number one, blessed is the man who walketh not. So write in the word walk because that's the first verb. You walk over to the forbidden. That's like Eve. See, Eve goes over. Yeah, let's make this a tree. This wrong way sign the tree. See, Eve, she knows. She's been told she's not supposed to go by that tree. What's she doing? She's walking by it. I'm not going to stay. I'm not going to stay. I just want to walk by the wrong way sign. It says wrong way all over it, but Eve goes. Her first mistake, she walked. Second verb, nor standeth in the, in the way of sinners. Because, you see, that's what Eve did. She not only walked over, she suddenly, she said, Wow, I've never been this close to the wrong way tree. Man, this isn't such a wrong way tree. Kind of nice. You know, it's like going to your computer laptop hooked up to the Internet, and you click it, and you got this little span that says Russian girls. So I'm just going to check it out, man. I've never seen Russian girls. So let me just take, just take a little quick look. All right, guys, just a little quick look. Russian girls. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to walk by and just, you know, just kind of walk by and just see what that's like. But what happens with sin, with temptation, is it moves from walking to standing. And before you know it, you are standing in front of that computer screen all alone. You are standing there. You see, that's what David did. He walked on his roof, but then he stopped and he stood as Bathsheba was bathing. It's terrible. These are the three progressive verbs for temptation and sin. And you know what? Before you know it, if you walk and then stand, trust me, trust me, you will soon be sitting. Sitteth not in the seat of the scornful. You will be sitting before the forbidden. It says stop all over it, but you are sitting there and partaking. Don't, 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 don't. But you do. Those are the three progressive verbs. 
of temptation and sin. So how can a man, how can a young man, look, I've got a whole choir of young men behind me. How can young women, how can middle-aged American men and women of the West, how can this congregation, how can we avoid the almost overpowering postmodern temptation of permissiveness? Answers in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. That's it. Right. Keep your pen moving. The Hebrew word for law is Torah. There it is. Torah. And what does Torah mean? Torah in its most exclusive sense. Let's put it up, please. In its most exclusive sense, it is the Decalogue. Write that in. What's the Decalogue? That would be the Ten Commandments. The don't, the don't. The wrong way, wrong way, wrong way. Ten wrong ways. Because they all are defending the right way. Don't, don't you ever be hard on the Ten Commandments. They're defending the right way, but they have to get your attention by saying wrong way. Just like that sign there. In its broadest sense, Torah is the entire, jot it down, the entire written revelation of God. But his delight, see, but her delight is in the Torah of God. And in the Torah does she meditate day and night. Guys, aren't you embarrassed? Aren't you embarrassed? That's almost embarrassing, isn't it? Because it says his delight is in the law. What's up with that? Can you imagine somebody actually delighting in the law? Please. I happen to belong to a community of faith, and some of you are watching right now, and I don't know what your community of faith is. I happen to belong to a community of faith that is very gun-shy about being gung-ho with the law. It's not politically correct in my community of faith. You know why? Because they might say legalism. Somebody might charge me with Phariseeism. Somebody might say it's salvation by works. And so in order to prove my very authoritative evangelical Christian credentials, what do I do? I downplay and I backpedal the law. That's what I do. And that's what my community does. Trust me, I know my community of faith. We backpedal it for fear of being labeled. And we make a terrible, terrible mistake. The atheist philosopher, existentialist philosopher... Jean-Paul Sartre. He is absolutely right. Jot this down, please. What's his point? His point is no finite point has any meaning without, write this in, without an infinite reference point. That's heavy. You'll have to unpack that later. But what's he saying? I want to turn to Art Lindsley in his book, True Truth. And I have the quotation so that you can, you can read along there. Only if there is an infinite, eternal, fixed point by which we can judge life, can we talk about the meaning of life? Without this reference point, we can only judge things from our own individual group or cultural perspective. Isn't that right? I mean, it's what my tribe thinks. I'm doing the way my tribe. Now, your tribe is different. You do it your way. That's postmodernism. There's no infinite reference point. Keep reading. If no finite point is meaningful without an infinite reference point, and if we accept that there is no infinite reference point, then life is truly meaningless. You see that? To discard the law of God either for political correctness or personal convenience is truly asinine. The Torah, the law of God, is the one infinite reference point that we have to have to give meaning to life. Society has thrown it out, and if we join society, it's over for us. It is finis. You say, well, listen, listen, Dwight, you know what we need to do? We need to get rid of all those dumb, wrong way signs. Let's just get rid of them all. Let's get rid of all the stop signs. Do you know how foolish that would be? Do you know why the stop signs are here? They're here for two reasons. Number one, they are here to preserve order. 
And number two, they are here to protect, to protect travelers. God wrote ten stop signs, and He said they're for the same reason. Preserve order and protect anybody traveling through this life. You don't throw the stop sign out. And by the way, as the Holy Spirit would have it, this very week, for weeks now I've been working my way through the, for my personal worship, I've been working my way through the book of Exodus. This very week, on Wednesday, I come to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. And I am reminded again that of, of all that is in this, in this little document, the Ten Commandments are the only, and in fact, I wish you would write this in, they are the only autograph. You can search this whole book through. Only the Ten Commandments are God's autograph. Write that in. What is autograph? Greek, Greek, auto, self, grapho, to write. Self-writing. It's the only place in the entire book that God personally wrote the text. The only place that God, we know for sure, So I'm not surprised. By the way, he wrote it with his what? Jot it down. He wrote it with his finger. Write it in. He wrote it with his finger. Signed it. Cecil B. DeMille, you ever seen the Ten Commandments? I don't know if it happened that way. But you know, fire chiseled out of rock. Don't you just love that sequence when God writes the Ten Commandments on film? How did he do that? I don't know if that's the way God did it. I just know the Bible says God wrote one piece of the entire Holy Scripture, one piece with His own finger, and that's the Ten Commandments. Jesus wrote, oh, God on earth wrote, and He wrote, his, he wrote the sins of an adulterous woman in the dust of the temple, so the wind, boom, erased the record. But God says, I'm not going to let anybody erase this one. I'm chiseling it with my finger in stone. Ten stops to preserve order and protect the traveler. It's no wonder. This is a no-brainer. It is no wonder that the enemy of God has leveled his heaviest artillery and most withering barrage against God's Ten Commandments. The thou shalt nots. They're the very signature. It's God's personal signature, and Satan wants to obliterate it from the human race. Get, get this. Just this week in London, just this week, Esther Knott, Pastor Esther, shared this with me from the London Times. On web, I read it. I couldn't believe it. A Christian community, a global Christian community, just this week in London, England, a global community released a statement declaring that its members need no longer accept the first 11 chapters of Genesis as historical. It's over. This big community said, it's over. No more. Genesis 1 to 11, historical. Hey, this is not rocket science. I'm not surprised when I remember that this very same Christian community centuries earlier had to get a hold of the law of God and said, you know what? This one, this number two is kind of, this is, thou shalt not have any graven images. And so they chiseled it right out of the rock. And they said, oh no, what are we going to do now? We only have nine instead of ten. Good, let's cut the tenth into two. We'll make two parts out of it. And now they have ten. I'm not surprised that that community would say, it's not historical. Because, you see, that's the same community that got a hold of the fourth commandment. And that community said, we don't like this. We changed it. We changed it. The Sabbath is not the seventh day. We change it. I'm not surprised that that Christian community of faith would then say, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are no longer to be considered historical. 
Shall we stand by muzzled and muted when the heart of God's law is carved out in front of this postmodern society that doesn't know diddly squat about whether that's true or not? You want moral absolutes, young adults? Oh, pastor, please call us to moral accountability. You want to be called to moral accountability? Then you have to have moral absolutes. Without moral absolutes, there is no moral accountability. You want moral accountability? I just gave it to you. No, God just gave it to you. It's called the law of God. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. God, give us Samuels today. Samuels who will stand up and stop this madness, this march to depravity. You know, I have an idea. I'll sit down. I have an idea. Let's, let's be like Mother Hannah, okay? Let's be like Mother Hannah and let's you and me beg God. Let's beg God for a boy. Let's beg God for a girl. Let's beg God for a generation of Samuels that will stand up and be counted in this postmodern march to depravity. Moral anarchy? God, give us a Samuel. We ought to be like Hannah and not quit praying that prayer. Sister Jones, not quit praying that prayer until God gives us that Samuel. He surely has a Samuel at Andrews University in the freshman class. He surely has a Samuel in the junior class. He surely has a Samuel among the faculty. He surely has a Samuel in this place who will stand up and stand still and say, Nope, 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 nope. I can't. I cannot. You can, you can fairly, fairly feel the passionate plea of Hannah in this quotation. My last quotation. There it is in the study guide. You have to fill it out. Let... Words written a hundred years ago, let no one yield to temptation and become less fervent in his attachment to God's law because of the contempt placed upon it. When the law of God is most derided and brought into, brought into the most contempt, then it is time for every true follower of Christ, for those whose hearts have been given to God and who are fixed to obey God, to stand unflinchingly for the faith once delivered to the saints. And here it comes. I love this line. It is time to fight. When champions, write it in, when champions are most needed, that's the time for you to stand up. It is time to fight when champions are most needed. Today, look, 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 look. Right now. Right now. In Iraq. Right now. The citizens of that nation are undertaking a national referendum voting on a constitution that will now offer laws to protect their freedoms and safeguard their liberty. Today, right now. And you know what? The authorities have predicted heavy insurgents' attacks upon the voters to destroy them. So much so, and I didn't know this, so much so that on Thursday, did you hear this? On Thursday, medical personnel were allowed to vote in advance so that today, right now, the, the emergency rooms of Iraq could be staffed adequately to experience the bloody carnage that will be brought to them. I watched those medical personnel vote on Thursday. You know, the ink this time is not blue, it's, it's red. I saw them dip their finger in that red ink, cast their vote in favor of that law, and then walk out marked for every insurgent who wishes to obliterate anybody who would stand up for the law. They now are marked by that red dye. 
How does that sentence go? It's time to fight when champions are most needed. God is calling for a generation of champions. Psalm 1 champions, Samuel champions. Men, women, and children who are willing to dip their finger in the red dye of Calvary and then cast their vote for allegiance to the law of God. And the question is, would you please be willing to be a part of that generation? Be willing to dip your finger, cast your vote, risk your life if need be to defend the law of God. To take that law in your hand and to cry out, Oh, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Would you be willing, would you, to stand up and stand still for Almighty God? I want to invite you to stand as we pray. Oh God, please, we pray the prayer of Mother Hannah. Please, Holy Father, give us a boy. Give us a girl. Give us a young adult. Give us a senior citizen. Give us a generation that would be willing to stand up and stand still in allegiance to You. You surely have Your Samuels right here and right now. Holy Spirit, keep speaking to Him. Assure Him that the call He is hearing is Your call. Keep whispering to her, I pray. The time has come. We are on the brink of moral anarchy. Now, the Psalm 1 champions, please. And now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before His throne with great joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen.